Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you articles of interest from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on the 20th of October for the listening week that begins the 21st. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening with articles from TheRoot.com. First one from their criminal justice section, written by Jessica Washington, published on the 17th. Excited delirium diagnosis have protected bad cops, but now prominent doctors are rejecting it. The American College of Emergency Physicians took a stand against the diagnosis of excited delirium, which is often used to justify deaths within custody. Most people have never heard the term excited delirium, but for years, cops have been using the diagnosis as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, prominent medical groups, which once championed the diagnosis, are disavowing the term critics call unscientific and racist. On Thursday, the American College of Emergency Physicians, ACEP, put out a statement rebutting their earlier report on excited delirium. The group also voted to prevent their members from being able to use the term whilst testifying in civil or criminal cases. The ACEP is following in the footsteps of the National Association of Medical Examiners, which earlier this year said that the term should not be listed as a cause of death. Earlier this month, California became the first state to ban doctors and medical examiners from using the term as a cause of death. To understand why this is such a big deal, we have to talk about excited delirium. Pardon me, typo. We have to talk about what excited delirium is and how cops have traditionally used it. Although the term had already been in use for decades, in 2009, the ACEP released a paper further legitimizing, me, further legitimizing excited delirium as a cause of death for people in custody. According to the 2009 paper, excited delirium symptoms include superhuman strength, being impervious to pain, aggressive behavior, and sudden death. Instead of having to look into whether excessive force or poor conditions had played a part in an incarcerated person's death, law enforcement and medical examiners could simply write deaths off as a result of this elusive disease with no clear causes and no diagnostic tests. It also probably doesn't take a medical license to notice that this diagnosis lines up perfectly with pervasive stereotypes about black Americans. We don't have to imagine a world in which this diagnosis has been weaponized against black Americans because we're already living in it. In 2019, medical examiners at the Adams County Coroner's Office marked Elijah McLean's cause of death as caused by excited delirium. Yes, the same Elijah McLean who died after police choked him and paramedics dosed him with ketamine. And during Derek Chauvin's murder trial, the defense teased the idea that George Floyd might have died from excited delirium instead of the nine minutes Chauvin knelt on his neck. 
One of the cops on the scene at the time directly questioned whether Floyd was suffering from the, quote, condition. The American College of Emergency Physicians statement doesn't mean the term will disappear. California is the only state where it's actually outlawed. Still, the news last week was a positive sign for people hoping to remove a dangerous medical weapon from the hands of law enforcement. Next, also written by Jessica Washington, published October 11th. Fewer black Americans are incarcerated than 20 years ago, but the problem isn't behind us. A new report found that one in five men born in 2001 were likely to be incarcerated within their lifetime, down from one in three from two decades earlier. Over the last two decades, efforts to stem the tide of mass incarceration appear to have made inroads. A new report from the Sentencing Project found that the imprisonment rate for black men was nearly cut in half since 2000. However, as the report notes, the era of mass incarceration of black Americans is still far from behind us. Black men born in 2001 have a 1 in 5 chance of being incarcerated throughout their lifetime. Moreover, the report warns that a wave of anti-reform efforts threatens the hard-won gains from the last 20 years. The October report from the Sentencing Project, a nonprofit criminal justice research and advocacy organization, examined the aftermath of the four decades-long buildup of the U.S. prison population. The good news. Incarceration rates in the United States have declined since their peaks in the early 2000s. Since 2009, the overall prison population declined by 25%, and the decline was even greater for black Americans. The number of incarcerated black Americans decreased by 39% since its peak in 2002, Things look even better when you dig into the imprisonment rate for both black men and black women. The imprisonment rate for black women fell by 70% between 2000 and 2021, and the imprisonment rate for black men fell by nearly half over the same period. The bad news. The not-so-great news is that we're still nowhere near out of the woods and anti-reform efforts aren't helping. As we mentioned previously, one in five black men is likely to end up incarcerated during their lifetime, according to the Sentencing Project. That's down from one in three black men who were born in, in 1981, pardon me, but it's not exactly heartening. There also continues to be persistent racial disparities within the criminal justice system. The lifetime likelihood of imprisonment for black men is four times higher than that of white men, it's also worth noting that these decreases follow a massive wave of mass incarceration. Our prison population in 2021 was still six times as large as it was 50 years ago. Anti-reform efforts, anti efforts are also gaining momentum, says the report. In Washington, D.C., Congress rolled back criminal justice reforms voted on by D.C.'s democratically elected city council, other cities and states, like New York and Florida, have narrowed previous reforms. While the Sentencing Project's report does include some good news, it also highlights the fragility of these gains and the long road still ahead.
Still reading from the root, from their political section, written by Antoine Seawright, pardon me, Seawright, Antoine Seawright, published October 5th. Political races black people can't and shouldn't ignore. You will hear a great deal about the upcoming elections in 2024, but here's what you really need to know. Over the days, weeks, and months to come, you're going to hear a lot of pardon me, a lot from folks like me talking about the presidential and congressional elections coming down the pipe in 2024. And with the House, the Senate, and the White House up for grabs, it's easy to see why. But just like the good athlete who plays the game in front of him instead of being distracted by the other opponents deeper in the schedule, we also must recognize that the elections coming up this year are far too important to miss. Kentucky Governor. With only three gubernatorial elections slated for this year, by far the highest profile race is in Kentucky where incumbent Democrat Governor Andy Beshear is facing Trump-backed Republican State Attorney General Daniel Cameron. Now, don't get me wrong, Kentucky is a serious red state. It's the home of Senators Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. Out of their six members in the House, only one is a Democrat and Republicans control both houses of the state legislature by wide margins, pardon me, wide margins. Yet Democrats have remained competitive in Kentucky's governor's office with eight of the last 10 governors being Democrats. On top of that, Bashir defeated incumbent Governor Matt Bevan by just over 5,000 votes in 2019, making that election Kentucky's closest since 1899. Bashir has his hands full this year in preventing the GOP trifecta. However, as Trump won Kentucky by more than 25 points in 2020, making this race a key test for Democrats and potential bellwether on Trump's post-indictment popularity. Virginia State Legislature Both houses of the state legislatures have elections in four states this November with Mississippi, New Jersey, and Virginia taking place on November 7th, and Louisiana taking place November 18th. But just like it was in 2021, all eyes are going to be on Virginia. Every seat in Virginia's legislature is up this November, and with Republicans holding a 52 to 48 majority in the House of Delegates, and Democrats controlling the Senate 21 to 19, the stage is definitely set, but the biggest question is whether dog whistle model Governor Glenn Youngkin Road, Youngkin, another typo, Glenn Youngkin Road to victory in 2021 will still prove effective two years later, or whether Virginia's voters are sick of the MAGA antics they see both in Richmond and in Washington, D.C. Voters and pundits alike will look to the Virginia elections for a snapshot of the landscape going into the 2024 election season, and that attention will echo across the nation. Mayors and city councils. It's hard to believe, but the truth is that 83% of all Americans live in urban areas. In fact, the Metropolitan Statistics Areas MSA, that contain our nation's four largest cities, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Houston, 
are home to nearly 50 million Americans and generate more than $5.4 trillion in annual gross domestic product. Not only, pardon me, that's not only roughly a quarter of U.S. GDP, it's the third largest economy in the world. In other words, if those four cities were a nation, their economy would be larger than every nation on the planet except the United States and China. Our mayors and city councils will tell you that local government is where the rubber meets the road, and a lot of those local elections are taking place across America this year. In Houston, voters will replace term-limited Democrat Mayor Sylvester Turner with, pardon me, whose Complete Communities Initiative has led to historic investments in the city's most neglected communities and whose campaign to end homelessness has become a national model. And in Philadelphia, voters seem set to make history and elect former Councilwoman Sherelle Parker as the city's first woman mayor. In North Carolina, Mayor Vi Lyles is on track to win re-election as mayor of Charlotte. And in South Carolina, Mayor John Tecklenburg Five opponents, including decorated veteran and longtime aide to assistant House Democratic leader, Representative Jim Clyburn, Clay Middleton. We've got city council elections in New York, a mayor's race in Indianapolis, and more across the country. So if you care about job creation, public safety, infrastructure, climate change, criminal justice reform, or a host of other primetime issues that will dominate the public debate for years to come, pardon me, the public debate, then you should care very much about local municipal elections in 2023. Ohio Reproductive Justice. Voters in five states will decide on 28 ballot measures on November 7th, but the big question is whether history will repeat itself in Ohio. If you want a refresher, just look to August 8th, when nearly 2 million Ohio voters pushed back a GOP power grab trying to prevent Ohioans from enshrining the right to, to reproductive, pardon me, enshrining the right to reproductive freedom in the state constitution. But August was just the undercard. November 7th will be the main event. That's when voters in the Buckeye State not only get the opportunity, to tell MAGA Republicans that no politician has the right to stand between a woman and her doctor, but also to broadcast a successful model for action and activism to be replicated across the nation. Remember, Ohio has a Republican governor with GOP supermajorities in both houses of the state legislature. So driving a successful pro-choice referendum in that environment isn't just interesting, it's remarkable, and if successful, draws a clear roadmap to protect reproductive freedoms across America. This was an opinion piece brought to you by Anchuan Seawright, who is a democratic political strategist, founder and CEO of Blueprint Strategy LLC, a CBS News political contributor, and a senior visiting fellow at Third Way. Next political piece written by Jessica Washington, still reading from theroot.com. This was published the 17th. Another high-profile rapper pardon me, endorses Donald Trump for president. What is going on? 
Waka Flocka Flame posted his support of the Donald going so far as to change his profile picture to a very awkward photo of him and the former president. Written by Jessica Washington. Waka Flocka Flame joins the list of rappers who have popped back onto our radar for their confounding political choices. On Monday, Waka Flocka Flame, a.k.a. Joaquin James Malfers, posted about his support for Donald Trump on X, formerly Twitter, Trump 2024, wrote Waka Flocka Flame, who proceeded to change his profile picture to a photo of himself and the Republican frontrunner. The responses to his tweet range from calling the Atlanta-based rapper out to cheers from fellow conservatives posting things like, Trump is the first black president in history, in caps. Waka Flocka Flame certainly isn't the first rapper to endorse Trump. Earlier this year, The Root wrote about the wave of black rappers who have showed their support for Trump. We wrote then, in July 2022, DaBaby called Trump a gangsta because he pardoned Florida rapper Kodak Black. In November 2020, during his last rally for the 2020 election, President Trump brought out rapper Lil Pump and introduced him to a crowd in Grand Rapids, Michigan. In October 2020, Lil Wayne was seen posing with the former president after he was pardoned on Trump's last official day in office. Weeks before Wayne, Ice Cube was under fire after it was revealed that he was working with the Trump administration just days before the election. Kanye West has essentially been supporting Trump since he initially announced he was running for president seven years ago. Rappers showing interest in Trump isn't new. The Huffington Post tracked 67 different times his name was dropped within a rap song over the last 25 years. This affinity persists despite his pretty public history of anti-black racism. Even before becoming a birther, Trump's anti-blackness wasn't a secret. In 1973, the Justice Department sued Trump, his father, and Trump management for illegally discriminating against black would-be renters. And in 1989, Trump called for the deaths of five black and Latino children who were wrongfully accused of raping a jogger. To be clear, a few prominent black rappers supporting Trump don't indicate any broad support for the former president among black Americans. If anything, it's a show of how class affinity, aka support amongst the uber-rich, is a powerful motivator. Black voters overwhelmingly supported President Joe Biden in the last election, and despite concerns that black voters are less enthusiastic about Biden this go-round, it's highly unlikely that black voters will completely defect to the Republican Party. Still in politics, also written by Jessica Washington, posted October 14th, can this former Air Force colonel replace the current Kentucky Attorney General? Maybe. I came back home to do for Kentucky what I did for America, says Colonel Pam Stevenson, who is running to replace Daniel Cameron as Kentucky Attorney General. Most of the political class has already shifted their attention to 2024, but this November, Key races are being fought nationwide, mostly note, pardon me, most notably in Virginia, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Mississippi. 
In Kentucky, Governor Andy Beshear is fighting to keep his position as one of the only Democratic governors in the Deep South. But he's not all, pardon me, but he's not the only Democrat battling it out on the bluegrass in the bluegrass state. The Roots sat down with Colonel Pam Stevenson, who is running to replace Attorney General Daniel Cameron. Stevenson, a Louisville, Kentucky native, is a relatively new face in politics. The Air Force Colonel was elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives in 2020, where she earned a reputation for saying her mind in the Republican-controlled chamber. Stevenson went viral in March for speaking out against a law banning gender-affirming care for transgender youth and placing restrictions on teaching about sexual orientation and gender identity. She made history earlier this year when she became the first black woman nominated by a party as Attorney General in Kentucky. Looking back at Stevenson's career, it's clear she's no stranger to breaking barriers. I served 27 years in the Air Force and retired as a colonel and came back to do for Kentucky what I did for America, she said, because they gave me the difficult jobs in the Air Force, negotiations, traveling all around the world, just working with people of all different cultures, making things happen for America, and I was pretty good. Stevenson served as a judge advocate officer in the Air Force, a type of highly specialized attorney who handles a wide portfolio of legal issues for the military. She says the same passion that drove her in the Air Force is what drives her to want to take up the mantle of attorney general. She says, I love serving something bigger than myself. The colonel wasn't idle in the years between her departure from the Air Force and her entree into the political arena. Before her run for public office, Stevenson opened up a nonprofit law firm for people who didn't qualify for legal aid. And after serving in the Kentucky House for two years, Governor Bashir asked Stevenson to run with him for the open attorney general seat. We're running to make a difference for all Kentuckians, she said, reflecting on how her Air Force experience shaped her perspective. No matter what country I was in, no matter what the language was, people want the same things. They want their children to do better. They want their lives to matter. And they want it no matter where, pardon me, and they want it to matter that they were here. What would Stevenson do as Attorney General? If she wins next month, Stevenson will replace Daniel Cameron, the much maligned Attorney General, called the killing of Breonna Taylor justified. For her part, Stevenson says that while there are issues with the police, she believes they still have a crucial role in promoting public safety. We need police officers, period. So we need to get police officers' resources to do the job the way it was designed to be done, to protect and serve people, she says. On the issue of abortion, Stevenson draws a clear line between herself and her predecessor. Cameron and her Republican opponent, Russell Coleman, are both staunchly anti-abortion, says Stevenson. I always go back to my service. Everybody that died for this country, the older people that died on those battlefields, died so that people can be free. They died for the promise of America. 
They died so that we could have rights, and that includes the right to privacy, the right to your body. Although Stevenson did not discuss specifics on how she would handle the state's abortion ban, she stressed that while she had to follow the law on this issue, she also had to follow the will of the people of Kentucky. The people have spoken, she said, referencing the fact that the referendum to strip abortion rights from the Constitution failed. The Attorney General is the people's lawyer. It is about what the people of the state say they want for their lives, and my job is to find that out and make it happen as long as it's legal. As Attorney General Stevenson said she would focus on marginalized groups in the state, there are vulnerable populations that we just don't pay attention to, she says, the elderly, children in foster care systems, disabled people. So we look for the issues that affect those people and give them a voice in the government. Guns, a hot-button issue nationwide, but particularly in the South, was another area where Stevenson wanted to see a shift. Nobody is going to take everybody's guns. We're just talking about responsible gun ownership, she says. Every right you have in the Constitution has a corresponding responsibility. You can't yell fire in a theater, and you still have freedom of speech. So with every right, there's a responsibility. Stevenson will face off against Coleman, a former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Kentucky under Donald Trump, in November. Election day is November 7th. However, early voting without an excuse runs from November 2nd to the 4th. And now from their literature department, still reading from The Root. It's written by Angela Johnson. It was published October 12th. Son of Famous Amos, the legendary cookie maker, shares sweet memories with young readers. Author-musician Sean Amos's new novel, Ellis Johnson Might Be Famous, is based on his real life as the son of Wally Famous Amos. Sean Amos is a children's book author and musician who also happens to be the son of entrepreneur Wally Famous Amos, one of the goats of the cookie game. Now himself a father of three, Amos is sharing his sweet memories of life with the famous cookie maker with the new generation through a series of books for middle grade readers, ages 8 through 12. His debut novel, Cookies and Milk, which won an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work for Youth and Teens in 2022, is a touching tribute to three generations of the Amos family. The story is based on Sean's real-life experience helping his dad open his now-legendary Los Angeles cookie shop, and the main character, Ellis, was named for his son. This month, Amos is picking up where cookies and milk left off with his follow-up, titled Ellis Johnson Might Be Famous. At the center of the story is 12-year-old Ellis Johnson, who is living his best life after his dad's cookie store blows up. But life in the spotlight means Ellis has to share his dad with the rest of his fans, something he's not so happy about. Ellis is looking forward to performing alongside his dad at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City, something he hopes will bring them closer together. But an embarrassing moment threatens to ruin everything. In an Instagram post announcing the book launch, Amos said he hopes readers of all ages will find something special from his story.
It's about adjusting to extended families and chasing fluency over fame. It also debates whether or not disco sucks. It's a book for kids and kids who now find themselves adults. It's fact and fiction. It contains my heart and soul, he said. Turning now to other sources and perhaps longer articles from the New York Times. This was posted September 30th, written by Rick Rojas. In a city too busy to hate, new attention to an overlooked race massacre. Researchers say that mob violence against black residents in 1906 played a role in Atlanta's evolution, whether residents knew it or not. Byline says, we're exploring how America defines itself one place at a time. In Atlanta, known for its relentless pursuit of prosperity, there's an effort to reclaim a horrifying and shameful chapter. The Reverend Charles Hamilton stood on a narrow median in downtown Atlanta on a busy Monday morning, cars whooshing by just a few feet away on either side. With the modest help of a microphone, he was making a largely futile attempt to cut through the noise and bustle with a message for a city that never slows down. It is through acknowledging the past that we move forward with truth and power, he told the small crowd that had gathered along with passers-by who might have caught some of what he said. Pastor Hamilton, who leads a local Baptist congregation, and the others had assembled by a statue of a crusading newspaperman from the 1800s that had become a grim landmark. It was there, in 1906, that the bodies of slain black men had been dumped in an outbreak of racial terror in Atlanta, perpetuated by mobs of white people over several days. It was a harrowing chapter in Atlanta's story that long seemed abandoned by history, Pastor Hamilton said many residents knew little, if anything, about it, but his vigil this month, tied to the anniversary, was part of a broader effort to draw attention to the massacre and uncover more details, illuminating the many ways its consequences have been felt in Atlanta for generations. The truth of your sacrifice will make us free, the crowd chanted each time Pastor Hamilton called out a victim's name working from an incomplete roster, since the identities of many remain unknown. Still, the list was longer than at last year's vigil. Two more names had been added, a breakthrough that researchers had achieved through tedious work. To date, historians have confirmed that 25 black people were killed in the violence, though the number could well be higher. The aim of these efforts to reconstruct and amplify the story of the 1906 massacre has been to encourage Atlanta to recognize the ugliest parts of its history. In recent years, many cities have been reappraising their history and exploring ways of correcting it. But Atlanta is a singular place in the South, crackling with energy and ambition, luring a relentless influx of newcomers with a sense of possibility that could feel elusive elsewhere. It has been defined in part by a collective embrace of being the city too busy to hate, a mantra adopted long ago by white and black leaders to prioritize the pursuit of prosperity over everything else. 
Making the massacre a more widely recognized part of the city's past, historians and advocates said, was not meant to disprove that mantra, but to complicate it. Atlanta is seen as the place that always has it together, said Darren Sims, the director of the Truth and Transformation Initiative at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, which has driven much of the work to draw new attention to this massacre. But for all its differences from much of the South, he said, it was not spared from the burdens of racism. The conflict in 1906 erupted after incendiary headlines screamed across the pages of competing newspapers, which had been published, pardon me, which had published accounts of black men assaulting white women that were exaggerated or entirely contrived. The articles called for a vigilante patrol. Their portrayal of black residents was vicious, describing them with, quote, any kind of horrifying name they could come up with, said Sylvia M. Johnson, a researcher with the Metro Atlanta chapter of the African American Historical and Genealogical Society. She said, everywhere they lived was a slum, and everywhere they went was run down, and everything they did was half-witted. And it wasn't. In many ways, the opposite was true. In areas like Brownsville, south of downtown, black people of that era owned homes, had access to quality higher education, started businesses, and established careers. Miss Johnson said, this has always been a city of black progress. There's a reason there are so many black colleges in this town, because black people wanted to progress and they knew they could do it here. But that advancement stoked resentment among many white people. On September 22, 1906, hordes numbering in the thousands converged in downtown Atlanta, according to accounts compiled by historians and researchers. The violence started with an attack on a black bicycle messenger, and the mobs then went after anyone with dark skin, pulling people off streetcars and stabbing them and dragging them out of businesses and into the street. The rampage continued for four days. Then on the final night, a group of armed white men charged into Brownsville. In the aftermath, homes and businesses had been gutted. Many residents fled. Atlanta, pardon me, Atlanta was rattled and shrouded in shame as word of the massacre spread. But soon, discussions of the violence were avoided and suppressed. For decades, there was no mention of it in the Atlanta public schools curriculum. There was limited scholarship surrounding what had been labeled until recently as a race riot. The result was a void in a city that is typically anything but ignorant of its history, wrapping itself in pride as the home base for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, Yet the massacre still silently had a role in shaping Atlanta's evolution. Its residue can still be found in the neighborhoods that were ravaged by the violence, in the chronic poverty and unevenness in quality of life and access to education and health care. Ms. Johnson said, It is evident why Brownsville isn't a thriving community as we speak. Parts of the city, once embodying black advancement, now represent the distance between its aspirations and reality. They were perfectly fine, she said, of Brownsville's turn-of-the-century residents. 
before everybody marched themselves two and a half miles south into that neighborhood, she said. Change will require confronting that history. Mr. Sims summed up his mission with a line from James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Community events like the anniversary vigil have aimed to help the city face the horrible truth of that massacre. A campaign by historians and activists also nudged people to refer to the violence as a massacre instead of a riot, arguing that the old terminology did not capture the widespread and merciless bloodshed. A similar effort was mounted in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where a massacre in 1921 killed hundreds and destroyed one of the country's most prosperous black neighborhoods. I've heard it described as we live in a time of truth decay, said Jill Savitt, the center's president. For us, it is very important to tell an accurate version of history. The work is also involved trying to learn about the lives that were lost, as even their names have been a mystery. To find them, researchers, including from the Georgia Civil Rights of Cold Cases Project at Emory University, poured over old death records looking for any indication a person might have been caught in the violence. Recently, researchers uncovered two faded return of death forms with similar notations. Riot, the label said. The names on the documents, Stinson Ferguson, 25, and Marshall Carter, 13, listed as a schoolboy. At Southview Cemetery, the breadth of the African-American experience in Atlanta unfolds across 100 acres and 90,000 graves. Hank Aaron and John Lewis are buried there. So are generation after generation of families that did not have fame but still claimed their piece of Atlanta's promise. Two victims of the massacre lie in marked graves. Down a slope from the manicured plots and engraved stone markers is a spread that rarely gets visited and is slowly being covered by vegetation, hidden away from the rush of the city. Researchers believe Marshall and Mr. Ferguson are there, somewhere, in unmarked graves, holding decades of Atlanta's poor. That is almost certainly where they will remain, slightly less anonymous after all this time. Next article comes from the Washington Post. It was published October 20th, written by Lori Rosa. Jacksonville struggles to overcome our racism baked into our culture. Dateline Jacksonville, Florida. The massive columned monument still sits in a downtown park just off, pardon me, just off Confederate Street. A mother and the two small children she is embracing high atop a pedestal at its center. Calls for its removal nearly prevailed two years ago until the cost hit $1.3 million. The city instead wrapped the women of the Southland in a tarp. The plastic has long since fallen off, leaving the bronze figures honoring the, quote, lost cause, visible to anyone passing by. Like so many aspects of Jacksonville, they symbolize the challenges that Florida's biggest city continues to face in reckoning with its racist past. Past and present keep colliding in wrenching ways here. In late August, 
three black people were fatally shot by a white man with a swastika-decorated assault rifle who had targeted a Dollar General store in a black neighborhood. That attack came a day shy of the 63rd anniversary of the violence known as Axe Handle Saturday, when a local white mob beat black residents protesting segregation. Then in late September, white officers were recorded punching and slamming a 24-year-old black man to the ground after a traffic stop. Detective, pardon me, detectives said he was being surveilled as part of a drug investigation and a resisted arrest. His attorneys said the tactics used to subdue him were like a ground-and-pound beatdown. I wish that I could say that as a community we are better than the actions of one racist individual, except it's not just one individual. This is unfortunately baked into our culture, said Kimberly Allen, who leads 90Forward, a group focused on racial healing and equity. The good news is that we don't have to stay in this, pardon me, the good news is that we don't have to stay this kind of Jacksonville, said Allen, who is black. There is hope and redemption if we are willing to be honest with ourselves and take a hard look in the mirror. Doing so has been complicated given moves by Governor Ron DeSantis and other conservative politicians since last year, from restricting what black history is taught to the state's schoolchildren to eliminating the congressional district in which Jacksonville helped elect a black representative. In a city where nearly a third of the residents are black, impatience and anger are competing with the hope that many have for change. They blame DeSantis in particular for dividing rather than uniting, despite his saying that what the shooter did was totally unacceptable. He was booed and shouted down at a local vigil the day after the triple killing. Many here view the governor's attack on wokeness in deeply personal terms. Black history has been closely intertwined with Jacksonville and North Florida's history for centuries. The city is home to Edward Waters University, an historically black institution founded in 1866 and has one of the largest concentrations of Gullah Geechee descendants in the country. Last year, it dedicated a public marker honoring a community built by formerly enslaved Gullah Geechee people in the 1870s. David Jameson, a black professor at the university, said the governor's response to racially targeted violence rings hollow. He says, Florida is where woke goes to die, and if you see wokeness as a dog whistle for people who are black, what does that tell the people who follow him? Seven weeks after the shooting at the Dollar General store, the handwritten notes of remembrance and sympathy left by family, friends, and strangers have faded in the strong Florida sun, as have the photos of those killed. Gerald Deshaun Gallion, Angela Michelle Carr, and Annalt Joseph A.J. Laguerre, Jr. Yet someone still leaves fresh flowers at the site a couple of times a week, which Deborah Cotton watches from her business across the street. People are still visiting. It shows how the tragedy affected the city, said Cotton, who is black. The people of Jacksonville have been shaken by it. She is a lifelong resident and believes the city can fight racism, 
by bringing better jobs and more job training to neighborhoods such as hers, plus fixing roads and attracting new businesses. She ran a summer school this year out of the hub, as she calls her venture, which offers various programs to youth, and she thinks investment in education should be a priority as well. Predominantly black areas on Jacksonville's north side grapple with decades of neglect and disinvestment, cracked sidewalks or streets without any sidewalks, and aging septic systems that regularly overflow into yards, no grocery stores. Redlining has deepened the economic woes, and on Thursday, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland traveled to Jacksonville to announce a $9 million settlement with a local bank accused of discriminating against residents in the city's black and Hispanic communities as recently as 2021 by denying or discouraging credit and home loan applications. The Justice Department complaint alleged that Ameris Bank located its branches to cater to majority white neighborhoods and to avoid serving black and Hispanic neighborhoods. If approved by the court, Garland said the settlement would go toward expanding access to credit opportunities. Pastor Benjamin Clark knows about other opportunities that were blocked and promises that were never kept. A 1968 measure emerged the government structures of Jacksonville and Duval County won voter support in part because of the touted benefit to black residents. The consolidation created the largest city in the lower 48 states, covering nearly 840 square miles. Leaders said the result would be more investment in historically black areas, away from the beaches and riverfront, but that didn't happen. Clark's Church, the Abundant Life Christian Center, too, is also within eyesight of the Dollar General store. There's some divide here that needs to be changed, he said, and a lot of that comes from the mentality of power and control that gave us zoning laws and things that divided us. Those have been roadblocks in the past, but they may be changing. He sees one bright spot on the horizon, Jacksonville's new mayor, Donna Deegan. It's a big job, but she has embraced it, he said. She seems to have kind of a kindred spirit, and that's what's necessary for us to move ahead. Deegan's victory in May surprised and shook the Jacksonville political establishment. She's a Democrat in a city that had been turned, pardon me, that had turned purple. Pardon me, start that over. She's a Democrat in a city that had turned from purple to red in recent years. Joe Biden claimed Duval County in 2020, but DeSantis won it by a wide margin in 2022. Six months later, voters elected Deegan, a longtime local TV anchor, as Jacksonville's first female mayor. Her success in beating a DeSantis-endorsed opponent came in part through strong support in the black community. Deegan campaigned on promises of greater investment in infrastructure and in social programs that address food insecurity and poverty. She also vowed to fight crime. The City Council approved Deegan's $1.7 billion budget last month, the largest in Jacksonville's history. It will help pay for sidewalk and crosswalk improvements, mowing and landscape maintenance, septic tank removal, and programs to address housing affordability and homelessness. 
By and large, we have a good, loving city, but there are still a lot of simmering issues from the past, she said in an interview. We're dealing with a system that still has some systemic racism in it. We should do better, and we can. She added, We have to make good on promises that have been broken for the past 50 years since we consolidated this city. Next, a profile piece, also from the Washington Post. This was written by Sidney Page. It was posted October 7th. How a former prison cook became one of the country's top pizza chefs. The kitchen was always the place where I could survive in, said Mike Carter, executive chef at Down North Pizza in Philadelphia. When Mike Carter was in prison, making pizza was his specialty, but he didn't prepare classic pies. He experimented with ingredients he could buy at the prison commissary, like ramen noodles and Cheez-It crackers for the crust. Then, barbecue sauce and pre-cooked sausage on top. He called it jailhouse pizza, with no fresh mozzarella, tomatoes, or basil readily available at the penitentiary. He had to improvise. Getting his hands on an onion or a head of garlic was hard. Still, he said, his recipes tasted pretty good. I had to get creative, said Carter, 37, who spent a total of 12 years behind bars, beginning with a stint at the New Jersey Training School for Boys, a juvenile detention center, for armed robbery and home invasion. He was 16. In the years that followed, he was in and out of prison for various offenses. Today, pizza is still Carter's specialty, but rather than improvising it in prison, he is crafting it at, as the executive chef of one of Philadelphia's most popular restaurants, Down North Pizza. The eatery only employs formerly incarcerated people, many of whom struggle to find work once they're released. The Detroit-style square pies at Down North Pizza have been showered with accolades, including being listed recently in the Washington Post's Best Pizza in America and the New York Times 2021, The Restaurant List, the 50 places in America we're most excited about right now. The menu includes pizza with names like No Better Love and Yeah That's Us after Philadelphia hip-hop songs. The restaurant also serves non-pizza items like za'atar cauliflower wings and apple pie milkshakes. For Carter, while the menu is important, it comes second to the restaurant's mission of helping people who have been in prison get back on their feet. In the U.S., more than 44% of former inmates end up returning to prison within one year of their release. There's a big stigma, he said. They've been dehumanized for so long. Oh, pardon me, that was a quote from Muhammad Abdul Hadi, the founder of Down North Pizza, which also offers housing above the restaurant to employees, as well as pro bono legal services. He said, we focus on humanizing individuals and allowing people to see that they should not be defined by a mistake they made. He said he hopes to reduce recidivism in the surrounding Strawberry Mansion neighborhood and minimize the stigma associated with incarceration. The person is not the crime, he said. The crimes are sometimes based off of their socioeconomic circumstances or the hand they've been dealt. They're not the monsters that people think they are. Employees like Carter, he said, embody the mission of the restaurant. 
Abdul Hadi said, He has evolved a lot from when he first came in here. I am very proud. As a teen, Carter lived with his grandmother in West Philadelphia. She worked hard to put food on the table, he said, though he was mostly left to financially fend for himself. I've been out in the world earning my keep since I was 14, said Carter, explaining that he was in survival mode, and when he had difficulty making money, he turned to crime. After spending three years at the juvenile detention facility, he registered for the restaurant school at Walnut Hill College in Philadelphia and worked at a catering company for a few months. From the time he was a child, Carter said he had a strong culinary instinct. He always wanted to become a chef. My kitchen IQ was always above and beyond, he said, noting that his cooking aptitude is embedded in his DNA. My love for food developed in my family. My grandmother was always cooking. I was always in the kitchen beside her. She taught him how to make her famous yams, greens, stewed chicken, and field peas. Not long after leaving the juvenile detention center, Carter got into trouble again in 2006. He spent more than seven years in prison for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. While he was locked up, Carter worked in the kitchen, cooking three meals a day for thousands of inmates. Whatever was on the prison menu I had to make, he said, adding that typical meals included chili, Texas hash, pancakes, grits, and spaghetti. Although ingredients were limited, Carter spent time experimenting and honing his culinary skills. He also learned how to make meals for the masses, which later helped him in his career. The kitchen was always the place where I could survive in, he said. After he was released from the state prison in Greaterford, Pennsylvania, in 2013, he enrolled in the culinary management program at the Art Institute of Philadelphia. He said, I was done with the streets, adding that he worked several restaurant jobs simultaneously. Carter felt like his life was finally on the right track. But then, in 2015, he was a passenger in his friend's car when it was pulled over during a traffic stop. An officer found an unregistered handgun in the car, and Carter was charged with gun possession. He also violated his parole by failing to update his address after his home was damaged by a fire. He was locked up for another 27 months and spent $15,000, which he had saved to open his own food truck, on legal fees. His case was dismissed, and he was released in 2017. That 27 months was the shortest time of me being incarcerated, but it was the hardest, because I had worked so hard to get where I was at, he said. Carter started working again in various restaurants, including a pizza shop. A colleague introduced him to Abdul Hadi in 2021, and he offered Carter a job at Down North Pizza. Mike just embraces the role with no complaints, said Abdul Hadi, who started a nonprofit called Down North Foundation, which funds youth programs and other projects aimed at stopping recidivism. Carter has been laser focused on growing his culinary career and supporting his colleagues. He trains and mentors every cook that steps into Down North Pizza. I try to teach them everything I know, he said. In addition to being the executive chef at Down North Pizza, Carter launched his own side catering company. His story has been chronicled in various publications, including a 2021 piece in Bon Appetit 
as well as the Philadelphia Inquirer and a recent feature in The Guardian. He is also working on a cookbook which is set to be published in 2025. This fall, Carter is teaching a culinary program at the Juvenile Justice Service Center in Philadelphia. His lived experience makes him the perfect role model for youth in detention so they can see a way forward, said Heather Leach, the director of Farm and Food Education for Down North, pardon me, for Down North Foundation. Leach co-instructs the class with Carter and also leads a gardening program at the center, which yields fresh produce that the culinary students can cook with. His enthusiasm about food is so contagious, she said. Carter hopes the program and his life story will leave a lasting impression on people. I want to leave my mark on this planet and actually help the guys that have been through what I've been through and prevent as many kids as possible from going through it, said Carter, who has a five-month-old son and an eight-year-old daughter. We deserve a second chance, and if given a second chance, we are the hardest working. Although Carter's path from prison cook to pizza aficionado had a lot of setbacks, he is optimistic about the future. He said food and family will be at the forefront, as well as raising awareness about the challenges formerly incarcerated people face when they return to their communities. He said, we are not our worst mistakes. There is redemption for everybody. And that brings us to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. Support for AINC programming comes from Westminster Human Services. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.